HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that shape our everyday experiences of growing, buying, and eating food. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law. We are broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today is our first program, and we have a great show lined up. We'll be starting with our food policy roundtable, discussing some recent food news, and later I'll be talking with Ricardo Salvador, Senior Scientist and Director of the Food and Environment Program at Union of Concerned Scientists. First, we turn to the policy roundtable, where we get behind the recent food headlines to make sense of the news. Joining me today are Kathy Nonis and Dennis Stearns. Kathy is an expert on obesity and diet-related disease and a senior advisor at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And also joining us, Dennis. He's written and taught about food policy extensively and is founding partner of Marler Clark, a law, term, a law firm devoted to the representation of persons injured by unsafe food. Dennis is calling us from Seattle today. Hi, everyone. Hi. Glad to hear you both there. Thanks for joining us on Heritage Radio Network. So I wanted to start today with a conversation about a recent study that suggested that while overall dietary habits of Americans have been improving, there remains, as the Atlantic Monthly put it, a yawning nutrition gap between America's rich and poor, which has been exacerbated in the years since the Great Recession. The Harvard researchers behind the study, which was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found that while America's wealthy are eating fresher, better produced, and more nutrient-dense foods, America's low-income folks continue to lack access to nutritious foods. So from the first lady to community groups, the focus on this issue has been huge, and yet there is a failure to improve diets across the spectrum. Kathy, as someone who has worked on health disparities for such a long time, what's your reaction to this? Well, I think that there are two things. The fact that a disparity exists between rich and poor in terms of food choice is not new. There is sufficient data to prove that healthier food is more expensive and usually more perishable. So 
case, the inability of some people to afford healthier food on minimum wage salaries has worsened because minimum wage has not kept up with inflation. And to add to that, the unemployment rate is high and people are having trouble getting even low-wage jobs and there are fewer middle-wage jobs. So there's a wider disparity between rich and poor. Um, However, at the same time, I I don't think that there's been a failure. I think that there's significant work being done to bring affordable, healthy food to people in areas with high poverty rates and high diet-related diseases. And the um, Farmers Market Incentive and the Farm Bill is just one such program that I will literally distribute coupons allocated with food stamp use at farmers' markets for fresh produce. So... Uh, all across the country, uh, even now, but now with this extra federal funds, people will, poor people will be able to afford fresh produce at farmers market more easily. So, and there are many, many programs like this all over. So, although the disparity um, is the same because everybody, including poor people, may be eating a little better. We still obviously have a lot more work to do to make healthier food the most affordable. But even though you mentioned a couple of really important programs and new initiatives, including that one in the Farm Bill, what not there a challenge around getting those things to scale that they can really impact on a population-wide basis? Um, yes, there is, particularly in today's Congress in terms of where money is allocated and distributed. Um, I think that all the people who are working on the ground have made it clear that when you bring, when you make fresh, healthier food affordable uh, in the neighborhoods that need them the most, people do buy them. Um, and there are, and diet-related diseases are reduced. So there is some effort on this. We have a lot more to go, but I, I, I guess I feel like there's hope. And I don't, so I don't think that there's been a failure. I really appreciate Mrs. Obama's work in this field. I think that's caused attention. And I think if we keep going, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing better. Good. Glad to hear the silver lining from Kathy. So moving on to the, the second story for, for the day, uh, Purdue, one of America's largest producers of chicken, has stopped administering antibiotics in humans to its chickens, antibiotics that are used in humans to its chickens. Antibiotic resistance is a major issue sounding alarm amongst health organizations, including the Center for Disease Control, as their use in animal husbandry, particularly, particularly their use in animal husbandry. And this is in light of the fact that at least 2 million Americans fall ill and at least 23,000 die each year from antibiotic-resistant infections. There's been some movement at the federal level and at the FDA to address antibiotic use in meat production with voluntary standards, but many have said that those standards don't go far enough. Dennis, here we have a company going beyond what the federal government has required. Can you give us some background on the antibiotics in meat issue, and why do you think Purdue is doing this? Well, sure. I think like so many things in the food industry, the use of antibiotics comes down to economics, which is really to say it's about profit and loss. Um, as I've argued uh, many times before, if, if food safety was consistently observable by the general public and the food industry could make more money by making food safer, then the food safety problem would largely be solved. Here with antibiotics, um, one of the things that really helps is that labeling allows consumers to seek out meat and poultry that is labeled antibiotic-free, and that's, in fact, what they're actually doing. So you do have, I think, consumers moving ahead of the FDA, which 
just really has a long history here of inaction. Um, the FDA is acting much like it did in the previous 15 years with regard to produce safety problems when the FDA's only actions was to issue guidance and suggestions and voluntary type things, and, and that's largely what they've done in the antibiotic re- uh, arena is, is recently issuing some voluntary guidelines hoping that industry would take steps on their own. Um, but, you know, they've consistently refused to mandate the elimination of antibiotic, which is probably a step that most public health professionals think that, that they should do. Um, so I think the FDA basically is probably sighing a little bit of relief seeing that the industry is moving in, in the direction uh, that they should be moving, uh, notwithstanding the lack of regulatory action on the part of the FDA. And it might not just be the FDA that's breathing a sigh of relief. Purdue seem to cite or point out that they're getting ahead of regulatory action as as a way of showing that, you know, regulation's not needed, industry can self-regulate, and at the same time um, acknowledge that the cost of antibiotic-free meats is a little bit higher than those that are not antibiotic-free. The New York Times uh, has said that the sale of antibiotic-free poultry is growing at 20 to 25% a year. So what this made me think about was, well, now we have, if you can pay a little bit more, you can get antibiotic-free meat, and if you can't, you can't. Uh, so I wanted to ask you both, what are the implications of this for the issue that we were just talking about in terms of bifurcation in our food system and what the difference is between those with more disposable income and those with less? You know, one of the things that I think is difficult for people to understand is the issue of how poor diets lead to obesity. And so the issue of food insecurity, the issue of not being able to buy these healthier foods, the fact that they're more expensive, means that people rely on meats that are not so healthy, on a lot of grains and a lot of um, cheap um, sugary drinks and things like that that they can afford, uh, things like milk, things like uh, free and, you know, milk that is um, uh, that is free of antibiotics, all of that, those things make it much more expensive. So it is incumbent, I feel, on the federal government to increase the amount of, of food stamps, for example, um, giving more um, incentives, food coupons for supermarket um, food, um, helping people to buy these healthier because they would be actually, I think, that when they lower the chronic diseases that are related to diet, they would also save money. So put the money where it needs to be, which is for the people to help them buy that food. I think, I think we have to be careful, too, to not let the income disparity aspect of it be used to, uh, to prevent improving quality and safety and things like that. I mean, I think the argument that, oh, well, meat will be too expensive for the vast majority of people to buy if we do X, Y, or Z gains traction a lot. What's lost there is is that, well, maybe if meat has to cost X in order to be safe, in order to be antibiotic-free, perhaps that's what it should cost. It just means that people need to eat less of it, use meat different, you know, maybe changing diets so that they aren't so meat-central. Um, so I think that the income disparity thing cuts both ways. Great. And we have just a couple of minutes left, but there is one more story I wanted to get your thoughts on. It's also about corporate action to improve health. 
The pharmacy company CVS has chosen to rename itself CVS Health after announcing that it will stop selling cigarettes and all tobacco products in stores. Um, and CVS seems to not be touching, however, the sale of junk foods, which are so intrinsically linked to diabetes and other health problems amongst Americans. Kathy, as someone who has been a pioneer in working on policy initiatives to change retail environments around healthy foods, what do you think this decision by CVS means for the future farm, future pharmacy shopping aisles? I need to know if I'll still be buying my Halloween candy at pharmacies for years to come. <laughs> Well, I applaud this important step by CVS because uh, to no longer sell tobacco products, and I'm hoping that other pharmacies take um, their lead. Um, it's very important. And by the way, it would be nice if they can make cessation a centerpiece by ensuring that NRT is prominently displayed and promoted, for example. What's NRT, But I also Kathy? think, yes, that it would be nice if we thought of things like candy as um, uh, hazardous stuff and it was also behind the counter or that we really considered we rethought what pharmacies and supermarkets are um, and maybe if you were going to have those aisles of junk food in your pharmacy that you would also have to have a substantial area for healthier and fresh produce too because that's a very and and milk and and other refrigerated items because that's a very big thing between pharmacies that now can pay more per square foot and supermarkets which have all these perishable foods and really can't afford to pay the cost. So that's why you see these pharmacies, um, you know, growing in every neighborhood, particularly low-income neighborhoods, and they have a tremendous amount of junk-stabilized food. Kathy, for, for listeners, what is NRT? Oh, it's a tobacco um, cessation um, uh, uh, product um, to stop you from smoking. Sorry. Okay, great. Thank And thank you for explaining the phenomena of Dwayne Reed's on every street corner in New York City. Um, <laughs> so I want to thank you both so much for participating today. A lot of discussions of issues that I know will will undoubtedly continue to be talking about. Kathy Nonis of the New York City Department of Health and Dennis Stearns of Marla Clark, thanks to you both for joining. Thank you. We are going to take a short break, and we'll be back in conversation about the relationship between the food we grow and the food we eat with Ricardo Salvador, who leads the Food and Environment Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. You are listening to Carried Away by the Hollows.
following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Welcome back, everyone. I'm incredibly glad to introduce Ricardo Salvador. Before coming to the Union of Concerned Scientists, where Dr. Salvador is the director of the Food and Environment Program, Ricardo served as a program officer for Food, Health, and Well-Being with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, where he was responsible for conceptualizing and managing the Foundation's food systems programming. Prior to his stint at the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, he was an associate professor of agronomy at Iowa State University, where he taught the first course in sustainable agriculture at a land-grant university. He is also the winner of a James Beard Foundation Leadership Award for his work on food systems, and he is joining us on the phone today from D.C., I think. Right, Ricardo? That's correct, Kim. Wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I want to start our conversation today with your organization, the Union of Concerned Scientists. What is the mission and history of the organization as it relates to food, and why would you say has food become such an essential topic for you to be addressing? Sure. Well, uh, the union's major issues at the moment have to do with how to feed, fuel, and transport our society in a sustainable way. And food is actually a big part of how we use our world. Uh, it is the world's largest user of fresh water. Uh, with climate change, this is a huge factor in terms of how we're going to feed ourselves sustainably. And food, in addition, is connected to everything, literally. 
Uh, it's a major user of fossil fuel. It's a major generator of greenhouse emissions. As many are keenly aware, uh, labor required for harvesting fruits and vegetables is uh, tied intimately to um, immigration policy. Uh, and because of the fact that we eat the product of agriculture, we shouldn't forget this, uh, it is tied to the nation's health and well-being, uh, as I'm sure everyone listening uh, is keenly aware, uh, we are currently in the midst of the most serious human-induced epidemic of chronic disease, non-communicable disease, and this consists of things such as uh, cardiac diseases, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, all of which are directly related to the way in which we eat. So human well-being is tied intimately to the food supply. So um, in the really big picture, uh, I think what we're talking about here with agriculture is that uh, it is part of the story of how humanity is emerging out of an era where we advance by exploiting nature and people, and we're learning that that will not be viable for very much longer, if it is even now. And that is what relates it to the core mission of the Union of Concerned Scientists, which from the very beginning in 1969, uh, at the height of the Vietnam War, a period of time when there was huge uh, environmental uh, crises all around us, you know, rivers were catching on fire, the air was not breathable in the nation's major cities. Uh, it led a core of students and faculty at MIT and Harvard to set up the union because they were appalled at the way in which science was being used at the moment, and they thought that science could be used to actually improve the prospect of humanity on the planet. So listening to you as you talk about these grave issues related to the food system, it sounds like you're saying, in terms of the problem, the science is in. We, we know we have a colossal threat on our hands. Is, that, is it also the case that the science is in, in terms of what the solutions are to those extremely grand challenges that you are talking about? Correct, yeah. I think that uh, there are many different threads that all of us need to consider uh, to decide how we improve the, the prospect of humans on planet Earth. And yes, science uh, as a way of knowing uh, is definitely one of the important ones. Uh, I think we need to set up a contrast here in order to clarify the question, though. Uh, the major tool that we use at uh, the Unit of Concerned Scientists is, of course, the scientific and the economic analysis that we do. Then what, what we do with that is to generate policy recommendations because it is very clear that the envelope for what is possible for the rest of us is defined by the nation's policies. And uh, this takes us into political work and, uh, you know, just defining it very general. Um, this is essentially the sphere where, you know, decision makers would have the authority to devote public finances and resources toward particular ends. And um, it's important uh, to uh, follow that we believe that when the public makes investments and the public is entitled to believe that there should be beneficial public outcomes. And so uh, science can be applied to that question. And... Um, one of the reasons why this is important is that uh, this is the following is true for just about anyone. Once we're invested in a system that we have built ourselves, it's difficult for us to accurately assess the weakness and the vulnerabilities of that system. Uh, you know, this is part of what's behind Clayton Christensen's idea of the innovator's dilemma. So um, it's important for different perspectives to 
inform, say, businesses and political decision makers about ways in which we could improve, uh, you know, the nation's systems, such as, for instance, our uh, energy systems and our food systems. So uh, this is what brings us to the policy work, and uh, one of the reasons why we believe that science needs to have a higher profile is that uh, for a number of reasons that we don't have the, the, the time to get into here, economics has become the major rationale on which we make decisions about biological and economic systems not the biology, not the ecology, not the science behind how those systems work. And, um, you know, that, that has led us to very bad places and very poor outcomes. And putting science into the mix will help us, uh, I believe, to rectify some of that. Though some would say if, you, if we were able to correctly incorporate externalities or economic costs of these systems, economics might still be an appropriate way of measuring the productivity of different approaches. Um, yeah, there's a there's a fraught uh, issue there. You know, ultimately, this is a, this is the social science. It's something. Uh, it's a field of inquiry that we have developed. Uh, you know, within the historical time span, we can point to the time when there was a science, uh, an economic uh, discipline, and the time prior to that. And it's ultimately around how you make decisions uh, where trade-offs are involved, and particularly where the decisions to make are not obvious. And so, I mean, it is it is a very important field of study. It does contribute to decision-making that we need to make about very complex systems. Uh, but it should not be determinative because, for instance, uh, in order to make proper economic decisions, you need to be able to have a real good measure of the things that you're making decisions about. And many of the issues that I've mentioned just so far in this conversation, say human equity, uh, concepts such as the prospect of humans on planet Earth, the value of water, the value of soil, uh, the water of organisms in the soil that make it productive, are things that economics just does not quantify. So they're off the books, literally. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there are many other ways that would be far more effective than to go through all of the mind-numbing work of coming up with quantifiable ways of valuing all of the components of mm -hmm. complex ecological webs. Mind-numbing and... Um and possibly un indeterminate, I guess, is what you're saying. So I want to talk about one of your one of the, the research approaches that Union of Concerned Scientists has taken and what you call the, the research, the relationship between what we grow and what we eat, and in, in your words, uh, the healthy farmland diet and what that should look like. So this is one, one piece of what the solution is to a healthier food system. So what is that relationship in the United States between what we grow and what we eat? Yeah. Well, uh, for a number of reasons, we have ended up with a system whose main feature is its productivity, and that productivity was generated by public investment to de de develop all kinds of scientific and, and thereafter industrial approaches that enabled us to produce primarily cereal grains at very large scale. And um, so, you know, we have uh, one of the world's major uh, grain-producing areas right in the heartland of the nation, and with that tremendous productivity, we've done many things. Uh, foremost, uh, developed uh, quite a large meat industry uh, for a period of time. The largest use of that grain was to fatten animals. And uh, the actual problem we should all be very careful to acknowledge that is at the core of the productive areas of the world. You know, there's another area just like the one that I've described in Argentina. There are pockets in Europe. There's another one in Australia. There is another one developing rapidly in China. Is surplus production. We produce 
too much of the wrong stuff because uh, if you remember the litany of all the diseases that are related to diet that I mentioned earlier on, uh, those are the results of eating too much of the wrong stuff, too much meat, too much processed food, too much sugar, too much salt. Uh, but the way that we have developed the system, as I described earlier, um, is highly profitable. We have a stake in the system. In the United States, it's about a $1.8 trillion stake. Globally, it's over $4.5 trillion in the food system as it is, which says, you know, the system is going to stay the way that it is uh, without putting into the mix the tremendous costs uh, to public health. So the relationship that you're asking about uh, is that since these systems have been enabled by public investment, we need to reformulate them so that we ask the question, what would better serve the public well-being rather than just leave it at what would be the most profitable? Uh, and so that is at the core of the work that we do. And another, speaking also of connecting food and health, another possibly more direct way of doing that is incorporating food more directly into our healthcare system. And I know Union of Concerned Scientists, in conjunction with the Center for a Livable Future at Johns Hopkins, issued a policy brief recently talking about that specifically and how the medical inf infrastructure can play a more direct role in fostering healthy food systems. Can you talk about the opportunities that you see there? Yeah, correct. Uh, you're referring to uh, an analysis that we did of a brand new program in the current Farm Bill, uh, which for your listeners is one of the major pieces of legislation that channels uh, millions of dollars to agricultural activity and also to uh, supplement diets for the poorest among us. And uh, there's a provision uh, in there which has received the name of Food Insecurity Nutrition Incentives, the FINI program. It's a very interesting provision because what it will do is to provide grants to community organizations that want to increase the availability of healthy food to low-income people. And there's a very interesting mechanism built into it, and that is that in order to access those dollars, uh, there's $100 million there over five years, uh, community organizations must, uh, must find a match. Uh, and this is a way of leveraging those resources. It makes all kinds of sense. Uh, there's all, been all kinds of pilot programs that show that this works. Uh, well, there's, it turns out uh, a very good place that we could go to for that match, and that is in the new Affordable Care Act. And most of your listeners would be familiar with the Affordable Care Act because of the fact that it is set up to increase access to health care, to lower the cost of health care. Well, uh, without getting into the details, one of the ways in which uh, it does that is actually to uh, subsidize uh, the cost of health care. And hospitals receive a tax break uh, if they provide community benefits. Uh, typically, that is being used to, as I say, uh, provide greater access to health care, but not under the Affordable Care Act. That is going away. Uh, in the half of the states in the nation, approximately, where the Affordable Care Act is actually going to be put in place, in order to retain community benefits, hospitals need to find another use of their resources. And so matching those resources with FINI funds would uh, open up uh, the gateway to about uh, $20 million a year. And that could go to support farm-to-hospital programs, um, Farmers markets on site at hospitals so that, you know, food literally would be part of your medicine. Uh, communities could decide to set up local food policy councils and use these federal dollars to support that activity. Uh, there's any number of programs that could go on down the list, but that's the opportunity that exists there. It's an example of a very well designed federal program 
to address multiple needs simultaneously, and the ultimate result should be that more fresh fruits and vegetables, healthy local food, are available to prevent disease rather than to cure disease after it has occurred due to poor diets. Right. So it's a a genuine opportunity to scale change. So before wrapping up with you, and I wish we had more time to talk about these things, I want to ask you about your career because you have such an interesting trajectory from researcher to grant maker to the Union of Concerned Scientists. They're all really different vantage points from which to influence change. And Union of Concerned Scientists, as you've talked about, is much closer to the political fray and further from the foundational work of scientists or researchers. Would you agree with that characterization? And if so, can you talk about what pulled you in that direction? Yeah, I think your your characterization is correct. And what has brought me to do this work, I think, is a a very uh, felicitous convergence of of interests. I got into agricultural work to begin with because I really wanted to do something about the deep inequities that you find in the food system. As I mentioned, within the same system, uh, you've got folks whose role is to provide the uh, labor for the system. And in this country, those are the very people that you would go to when you list who are hungry in this country, people that pick fruits and vegetables, that work in the back ends of institutions such as hotels and restaurants, wash dishes, and so on. Uh, so there's tremendous built-in inequity in the food system where the people that enable it aren't able to participate fully in its benefits. And so that's what brought me to the work. And uh, I was very fortunate that in order to get the knowledge, in order to get the credentials and the experience that I needed, I entered into a scientific career. This gave me deep understanding, uh, uh, entree to the way in which agriculture actually works, what the internal rationale is, what the history is. Uh, and because my motivations were social in nature, as I've described, it eventually took me to uh, working with civil society, both through grant making and now with the advocacy community. So these are all complementary experiences, and I can't think of a, a better way to have actually put it together if I had designed it, although I didn't. It's fortuitous, and I can't think (laughs) of a better place to be to be doing this kind of work. Thank you so much, Ricardo. We will have to leave it at that. I really appreciate you joining us. That brings us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. I want to thank all of our guests and also Nisha Vida for helping in putting together this show. I'm Kim Kessler, and thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.